for this morning. We pray you guide us and help us as we look into your word that we will find encouragement in your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <sighs> nice to see you. Was a little bit of a frustrating week. I'm sure you've had one of those before. And uh, what was frustrating to me, at least this week, was I couldn't find my Bible. I mean, I have many Bibles at home, but I only stick to one. And I knew I'm supposed to preach, and I'm looking for my Bible, the one I highlight, the one I write notes, the one, so I've looked all over the house. I've come to the chapel many times, looked around, looking for my Bible. Well, I, my wife found it uh, just last night. So when a preacher doesn't find his Bible, it's hard to find the message. So that was a little bit frustrating, and I was tempted to go to Miracles, to go and buy, because I just, see, my Bible is just a very simple, nothing fancy, nothing complicated, just simple, but it's my Bible. I've highlighted it, I've marked it, I've written on it, so I'm, if I need things, I can easily find it, but I couldn't find it all week. So, but we finally found it last night. Uh, I trust that the Lord wanted me to use my Bible for this message. And secondly, I typed up my message. There was a um, uh, construction near our office at work. So I brought the message home on a stick to go on my computer. And then I tried printing. And for some reason, words will not talk to the printer at home. And I'm not used to PowerPoint, click, 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 click. So, so then it means to this morning you have to count on the Lord. The point is this, forget the preacher, look to the Lord. The message is coming and I want to point your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I still couldn't print the message, but I do have the message, regardless. And I couldn't go back to the office to print because our office, there's construction and there's blasting going on, so we've been asked to keep a low profile, stay away for a while. Now I'm talking today on what we might say, farewell message. The last words of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples as he was going to the cross. That's where we're heading. And uh, I want to start by noting the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. I call the Gospel of John the book that helps us to believe. I'm sure you are familiar with John, and if you are not familiar with it, it is a good book to read at least once a year. 
it will point your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that I believe no other book in the scripture will do. In fact, John tells us that the purpose for writing his gospel is that so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that we believing we may have life in his name. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. So I'll, I'll first do an overview of the Gospel of John, and then I will zero down on a few thoughts on my message, uh, which I will only zero down on a very little aspect, and hopefully that will spur you to read the rest of what the Lord Jesus has to say. So there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And um, the first chapter from verses 1 to 8 talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Talks about Jesus Christ as God, the deity of God. Now, from chapter 1 to chapter 4, we see Jesus, the God man, ministering and making known his reason for coming. The word became flesh is man manifested there. In these chapters, chapters 1 to chapter 4, there are a few signs or miracles. Water is turned into wine when there was a wedding in Cana. And then official son is healed. One of the official son is healed. And then if we move on from chapter 5, to 12, there Jesus is ministering and he encounters opposition, he also performs miracles. For example, he heals the man that was laying at the well for 38 years in that, those chapters. He feeds 5,000 people, is mentioned. He walks on water. He heals the blind man. You remember him? An interesting chapter of the Bible. I always find that very interesting, very, very interesting, and I will tell you why. This man was born blind, and the disciples thought it was his sin that made him blind. Jesus said no, and Jesus healed him. After he had healed him, the Pharisees got to hear about it, and then they called him. You know what the Pharisees said? How did you get healed? The man said, a man called Jesus healed me, and that's how I see. And then the Pharisee says, we know. I want you to look at that phrase. When you go to that chapter, read, we know, we know, we know, we know that this man is not from God. We know that this man is a sinner. We know this, we know this, we know this. But the one thing they did not know, they did not know the Son of God. And the blind man said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, and it's evident from what you can see, I was blind, but now I see. He told them what he knew, and what did they do? They kicked him out. They said, you were all together born in sin, and you want to tell us about theology? This is a ministry and a specialist. You go away. You know, we have nothing to do with you. But the phrase we know, we know. The Pharisee knew everything apart from what they needed to know. Knowledge of the Son of God. And in our world today, there are so many people with no, 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 except the one thing that they need to know, the Son of God. 
The blind man didn't know much. He knew that he was blind, but now he sees. And he knew Jesus as the Savior. I find that fascinating. So that's uh, in that, within that uh, portion from verse 5 to 12. And chapters, sorry, chapters 5 to 12. And within that chapter, there's also conflict with the Pharisees. Lots of it. They're always complaining about him healing on Sundays and things like that. Or on Sabbath day, sorry. Chapters 13 to 17. I'm going to preach on very little aspect of this chapter. But this is the main chapter that we will be looking at this morning. And that's will it talks about discourse jesus is having conversation with his disciples so we'll come back to those uh, those uh, chapters shortly in chapter 13 he demonstrates servanthood or humility in chapter 14 he talks about heaven in chapter 15 he talks about abiding in chapter 16, he offers them lots of promises. And in chapter 17, he prayed to his father. So just keep that in mind. And then in chapter 18 to 19, we have the trials and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 20 is uh, uh, the resurrection, the empty tomb. And then chapter uh, 21 is assurance. Now I want you to notice something with me. Chapters uh, 1 to 12, Jesus was having public ministry. He was preaching to the people. So it was a public ministry. In chapter 13 to 17, it was a private ministry. He was zooming on his 12 disciples private ministry and of course chapter 18 to 19 was his trial you know somehow public and private you can put it anyhow you want but chapter 20 and chapter 21 it was private he was speaking to the disciples in fact his public ministry ended in chapter 12 going forward from chapter 13 forward it was mostly private ministry and I want you to notice something else with me. In, if you have your Bible, I, this is why I was looking for my Bible. And, uh, you know, searching for it because, you know, it's my Bible. I mean, many people get excited about many things. I get excited about very few things, books being one of them. And now my Bible was missing. I complained and moaned and walked around the house looking for my Bible. I finally found it. And I'm glad it is here. Now, if you go to John chapter 13. So just let's go to John chapter 13. I'll show you a few things. And then we will begin to, you know, talk in details. Jesus' farewell's message to his disciples. John chapter 13 to 17. I think in some uh, 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 places they call it the upper room discourse. If your Bible is like mine. You will notice, if you have the red letter Bible, you will notice that chapter 13, there's a little bit of red. Chapter 14 is all 
read, almost all read, except when you go to verse 5 where it says, Thomas said to him, and then verse 9, Philip said to him, and verse 22, Judah said to him. Chapter 15 is all read. Chapter 16 is almost all read except verse 17, verse 18. And verse 28 and 30. And chapter 17 is all read. In other words, Jesus is the one that is delivering the message. And I want you to notice also, this message was delivered within a one-night period. The night of his arrest. All of this message, this is the message he gave within the one-night period to his disciples. And I want you to think about it. If the Gospel of John has 21 chapters, and five of those chapters are devoted to a message given on one night to his disciples, it must be important. And that's why I want to spur you to go and study it and read it. Because it's a message for us. If you are a believer, if you are a child of God, there is something there for you. There is something there for you. So it's a, a one-night message on its way out. And you know, I think in general, people, when they're saying farewell, that's when they give the most, so to speak, important things that they want you to know the things that they want you to learn. And uh, the Lord Jesus delivered this to the disciples. So it must be important. And so we should take it, if you are a believer, a child of God, you should take it import as important, and I should. Um, five chapters in one night. And that's uh, the first point I wanted to make. So chapter 13, let's... We will do a little bit of just looking through, and then we will zoom down on just one of the messages. So we'll look through. In chapter 13, it begins with supper ending. Now let's read verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour has come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then, you know, he begins to wash feet there. So, and then in that chapter 13 as well, Jesus offers this statement, which will be the key passage for this morning when we get there. Verse 34. Speaking to his disciples. Uh, we'll come back to read this verse, but let's just read it for now. He offers this statement, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we'll come back to that passage or that verse. In chapter 14, Chapter 14 is where Jesus is talking about heaven. And there he tries to calm the hearts of the disciples. And he makes a statement. 
that makes it clear that there is only one way to God. When Thomas asked him, Lord, we do not know the way, in verse 5, and where are you going, and how can we know the way, Jesus said to him, verse 6 or verse 8, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now let me say that again. It is the Lord Jesus that said that. Several years ago, somebody was at the chapel, a visitor from the neighborhood, and uh, the lady was saying, there are many ways to God. There are many ways to the Father. And then I think my wife pointed out this verse, and she was very upset. It couldn't be right. It couldn't be true. Jesus doesn't discriminate. And that's why he's in red, red letters. That means it's not uh, John that made it up. It's not any other person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm sure, how do we put it? That would not be, in our world today, that is not a PC or politically correct statement. In fact, to say that out means you are probably going to be labeled intolerant. But the Lord Jesus said it clearly to the disciples to make it clear to them that there is only one way to the Father. And that's the challenge. If you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord, if you don't recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you have not surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an opportunity for you to do it because no one goes to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, those are words, hard words, but they're from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what he said there. And uh, in chapter 14, he talks about something else that we need to keep in mind. The Lord Jesus is coming back. He made a promise in that chapter with his own mouth to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again. Except, I mean, again, it's not something that Paul made up or any of the other people, you know, forecasted that this is what will happen. Jesus said it. So we know heaven is for real and his return is certain because he said it. He cannot lie. He has stated it there in chapter 14 of that same book. In chapter 15 of the same book, he tells us that he is the vine and we are the branches and that we need to abide in him. He makes an incredible statement. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And you say, well, I've been doing things all of my own, all my life without him. But he's saying, apart from me, you can do nothing that counts as far as God is concerned. He says, for without me, you can do nothing. That's in chapter 15, you know, the abiding chapter. And in that same chapter, he mentions as well that there will be a relationship between Christians and the world. The operative word that he uses there is hate. The world who hate believers. That's just what he said there, talking to his disciples. 
In fact, he said something that is, might seem shocking. He says, a time will come when people will kill believers and say they are doing God a favor. A hard thing to say on the night of your departure. But he was telling this to the disciples. Letting them know that the world and the believers, they are not on the same page. We are children of God on a different page from the world. So in chapter 16 of the same book, Jesus makes a statement that is going back to the Father. But let's zoom down to verse 33 of chapter 16. Why did he speak all these things that he had, was speaking that night to the disciples? Verse 33 tells us, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. That's the source of peace for the believer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. But look at what he says. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So are you looking for peace? It's found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not found in our circumstances or situation, but in a person. In me, you may have peace. Now, in chapter 17 of the same book, the Lord Jesus prays to the Father. He prays to the Father and um, about the disciples and about all believers. So all of that discussion that we are mentioning is one that he gave to his disciples in one night on his way out, the upper room discourse. Very important. He talks about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit will do. I mean, I didn't go into all of that. But it's a good book to read. It's a good chapter to read. If you want to know at least, how do they say it? Right from the source, straight from the source, what the Lord thinks or what the Lord has in mind. That's a good place to be. All right. So, we have at least gone through that section, but our key verse this morning is in John chapter 13. In John 13, there is something that happens, and then Judas leaves. So, let's read from John chapter 13 from verse 31. So when he had gone out, that's Judas, if you read the next verse, you will see, the previous verse, Jesus said, he's speaking to his disciples, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. You notice the phrase, glorify, glorify, glorify. He's going to the cross. And he's talking about the cross as glory. God is glorified in himself. And then once Judas has left, and then he, he says this to the disciples, then he looks them in the eye, he says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I say to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, 
He's telling them this, an element of finality. I am leaving shortly, and where I'm going, you can't come, and I'm going to say something to you. And this is what he said. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's read that again. If you don't get anything out of this, what I've said this morning, this verse is important. If you are a Christian and a child of God, this verse is important. The last or the very first thing the Lord Jesus says to his disciples as he was launching out on his way to the cross. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Strong words. If you go to Amazon.com, you know that website where they get your money because you have to buy stuff, right? They have lots of books. And I believe there are over 500,000 titles of books on heaven in Amazon.com. Maybe over 550 titles on things about sex, for example, in the same place. 800,000 books or so or more about God. About almost a million, 900,000 about money. But the one that has the most titles is all about love. Over a million or so titles. Because everybody is looking for love. Love is a very popular subject and is frequently used in the Bible too. At least 500 times the word love is used in some fashion. If you look at the book of John, in John chapter 1 to 12, where Jesus has his public ministry, he mentions love about 12 times. The word love is mentioned about 12 times. From 13, John chapter 13 to 21, where he has his private ministry, the word love is mentioned at least 45 times. In the last 24 hours of Jesus' departure, the word love is used repeatedly. And Jesus says this, the key to impacting the world is that believers love one another. He says, by this all men would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's very important. Love is extremely important. This command to love one another is repeated in chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus repeats it. He repeats it also. Let's read that, chapter 15, 
verse 12. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He repeats it in chapter 15, verse 17. No longer do I call you servants. Sorry, these things I command you that you love one another. The same night, in that discussion, he mentions it. In fact, Apostle John understood what this meant and he took it to another level in 1 John. Read it, read 1 John and see the word, if a man hates his brother, he abides in death and stuff like that. And Peter took this up again. Let's go, for example, to 1 Peter verse 4, or chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, where Peter talks about this. Again, this is why I was looking for my Bible, because I highlight my Bible, and you know, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, where Jesus, Peter says, but the end of all things is at hand, is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. Why? For love will cover a multitude of sins. In other words, I'm going to offend you, you are going to offend me, we are going to say things we are not supposed to say, we are going to act in a way we are not supposed to act. It happens. And the only way we can maintain fellowship is that you have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Says so, so we need to do that. Above all, have fervent love for one another. Now what does it mean to have love for one another here? The first thing we need to note that Jesus says that it is a command. That's the first thing. That means we need to do it. It's not optional. If you go to college where you have to pick and choose courses, you say, okay, I don't like this one, so I will pick that one. But this one is not optional, so it's a command. He also says something. He said it is new. New commandment. It's not simply additional or different. It is fresh and unique. And notice it's not speaking about love to all men, but love within the family of God. Love for one another. Love itself is not a new commandment, but it's an old one. In fact, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 has it. The new thing appears to be the mutual affection that Christians have for one another on account of Christ's great love for us. And what does it mean? I understand from those that study Greek that the word is using is agape. And that doesn't mean, oh, I feel love, I feel good. You know, it has nothing to do with the feelings, really. Let me say what it has to do with. Essentially, it means to seek the highest good of another. To seek the highest good of another. So when you think about it, 
Sometimes you don't feel like loving. Uh, I don't feel like, but you need to seek the highest good of another. So that's what it is. This type of love refuses to respond negatively, refuses to reject, or to demand conditions. If you do this, I. It refuses to nitpick the lint, I will put it on someone else's soul. Looking, you know, seek the highest good for, of one another. And Jesus said something else. So if you keep looking, he says, let me go back to that passage. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. What's the measure of this love? As I have loved you. That's the reference, the standard. He set up himself as the standard by which they were to measure their love for one another. That's, he, Jesus is the standard. He sets up himself as the standard. So you can't use any other reference except the Lord Jesus Christ as the standard. And so when you think of your love, it's almost like you always have to use him as reference and then build up. You can't use me because I'm going to fail you many times. You can't use any other person as I have loved you. He's telling them I left the splendor and comfort of heaven because I love you. I called you mine knowing fully well all of your faults and shortcomings because I love you. I taught you even when you were stubborn and close-minded and didn't understand because I love you. I corrected you when you step out of line because I love you. And even in this chapter, the Lord Jesus is probably the best teacher. In fact, he is the best teacher that ever has been and will be. Before giving this commandment, he did something unique. He washed their feet. He set up an object lesson for them before he gave the message. In this chapter, John chapter 13, you know the story, I'm sure you're familiar with it, where he took up a towel and washed the disciples' feet. And then he told them, you know, in verse 17 of 13, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus loved his disciples unconditionally. He loved them in their unbelief, in their pettiness, even when they deserted him on the way to the cross. I have verses for that. He loved them in their denial. In Matthew chapter 26, we always pounce on Peter and say, Peter denied him and ran. All of them did. No one stayed behind. He loved them. He loved them. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse 1, let's read that again. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour has come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. From the beginning to the end, he loved them. Notice what Jesus didn't say. When we read verse 35, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. He didn't say, if you become serious students of the Bible. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. He didn't say, 
if you fast at least once a week. He didn't say if you attend every meeting and seminars, or even if you give your time, talent, or money to good works. He didn't say that. He sent out, he set out only one benchmark for judging disciples. The love that they have for one another. All of these things I've mentioned are valuable, commendable, part of the things we should be doing, but not one of them is a magnet that draws people to a knowledge of God. Only when the world sees the love that we have for one another that they will be drawn into the arms of God. So it's important because the Lord Jesus, in this some sense, has given permission to the world to judge us. And the measure that they should use is our love for one another. So in some sense, he has given permission to the world to judge us. Now, this is just one of the messages that he gave on his way to the cross. So what can we learn from this? Well, we can learn one thing, that loving believers is very important to God. No doubt about it. By the time I spend 10 extra minutes, somebody's going to be angry the roast this morning, but you have to love me. <laughs> because it's important to God. In other words, all I'm saying is that offenses come and they will come. Not necessarily from me, or they will come, but we have to ask for grace to love the people of God. It's not optional. It's what the Lord expects us to do. And it applies across the board. In other words, okay, is for the elders and for the deacons. When I grow up, I will start loving. No. All of us are supposed to love one another. This kind of love is unconditional in its expressions. Do I exhibit this kind of love when my kids keep me awake at night? Has it happened last night? I must say that sometimes I fall short. I'm reminded of a story of a, a man that thought, oh, what can make my wife happy? And because they had little kids, you know, so he said, okay, well, I know she loves to, she needs a blouse, so maybe we can go to the mall to buy one. So he made arrangements for babysitting and for people to look after the children and then took his wife, you know, she was looking forward to it, going shopping with the husband. So they went into the mall and then she went to the first shop and then looked at the clothes. Oh, nice. And then she picked it. Meanwhile, the man was thinking, I'm hoping that this event will finish in about 20 minutes so that I can go back and watch football. <laughs> that was the plan was, let's get the blouse, let's get into the mall and then we get out so that I can you know, go and watch football. So she went and looked at the blouse, picked it, and then he said, what do you think? And the husband said, if you like it, that's all that matters, I like it. And then she dropped it. And then they moved into the next store, she picked the blouse, another blouse, you know, and then he said, it's good, it looks nice, and then wore it, and then said, what do you think? 
If you like it, I like it. And then she dropped it. She moved into the next store. And this went on and on and on and on and on. And you can imagine, football is almost starting and the husband is all furious. And finally she said, ah. She picked up a dress and said, oh, I'm buying dress for Nick. <sighs> By this time, he had lost it. We came to find a blouse for you and you are buying dress for Nick. And it ended up, so he blew it, said, well, this time. And of course, he said, let's go and have something to eat. Football was already starting. It was already, you know, so he was all furious. To him, the love for his wife meant getting a blouse and getting out. To her, the love for her meant having a one-on-one -on -one time with my husband and just going around. You see, friends, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Are the love unconditional when we express it? Sometimes it means going the extra mile because you are seeking the highest good of the other person. It should be unselfish. It should be unlimited. We need to love one another. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying. And Paul took this to a great height. He said, if I'm a great preacher, if I can perform miracles, if I can do many things that look good, but I have not love, it's nothing. And that's why it's extremely important. The love that believers have for one another is to be the badge, the identity by which we are known. And the Lord Jesus emphasized this to his disciples. One more story, and then we will sing. Chuck Colson, you've heard of him before. Richard Nixon's right-hand man. He tells a story, a very personal story, that took place inside a state penitentiary death row. Was a death row. Since my, let me just read, I think it might be easier. He said, my schedule was extremely tight, so after we finished Amazing Grace, we said our goodbyes and began getting out. We were crowded into the cage area between two massive gates. When we noticed one volunteer had stayed back and was with James Brewer in his cell. I went to get the man because the warden could not operate the gate until we all cleared out. I'm sorry, we have to leave, I said to him, looking nervously at my watch, knowing that a plane was there on the tarmac on the airstrip to fly me to Indiana, Indianapolis to meet with Governor Orr. That's the name of the governor. The volunteer, a short white man in his early 50s, was standing shoulder to shoulder with Brewer. Brewer was on death row to be killed shortly. And they were preaching to him in prison. And this volunteer was. The prisoner was holding his Bible open while the older man appeared to be reading a verse. Oh, yes. The volunteer looked up. He said, give us just a minute, please. Give us a minute, please. This is important. He added softly. No, I'm sorry, I snapped. I can't keep the governor waiting. We must go. That's what Chuck Colson said. 
I understand. The man that was uh, preaching to the prisoner said, the man said, still speaking softly, but this is important. You see, I'm George Clement. I am the man who sentenced James here to die. But now he's my brother. And we want a minute to pray together. Your cousin went on to say, I stood frozen in the cell's doorway. It didn't matter who I kept waiting, anywhere other than the kingdom of God. That inmate might have killed that judge with his bare hands or wanted to anywhere. Now they were one, their faces reflecting one indescribably expression of love as they prayed together. Remember the judge was in the cell all alone with the prisoner. And the judge sentenced the prisoner to death row. But the prisoner had become a Christian. And Chuck went on to say, I call this frontline love. It is the kind of affection Jesus showed his disciples on the way to the cross when he washed their feet. May the Lord grant us the grace. I fall short every day. So please don't think, oh, the preacher came to preach at us. It is because I fall short that I ask for grace for myself and for you so that we will obey this new command from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are going to sing a song after I pray. Brother, let me be your servant. So I'll pray and then we'll stand and sing and then we'll be dismissed. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you grant us the grace to obey this simple instruction because it is the identity of Christians. It's the badge that you have given us as believers. Grant us the grace to love one another as you have loved us. For those that don't know Jesus as their Savior, I pray that, Lord, they will join the family by accepting him as their Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Brother, let me be your servant. The servant's song. It's titled, The Servant's Song. Unless it's not typed in there. It's there. All right, standing as your able, let's sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I might have the grace to let you be my servant to me. We are.
Thank you very much and have a good week.